this week on the Back Table Podcast. We all need to be very vocal in our support of our colleagues who provide this care regularly and that we believe it to be essential health care. And not only just essential health care, compassionate, conscientious delivery of care, that we feel that strongly about it so that they know that we are very grateful for the work that they do and you know, honored to call them our colleagues. Like really fight back hard against the stigma that's developed around provision of this care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. This is Mark Hoffman, and I've got with me today Dr. Amy Park, who is our co-host for today's episode. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm actually the section head of urogynecology at the Cleveland Clinic, and I am so thrilled to be here with you today. Now, we're, we're, uh, we're excited to have you, and we've got uh, an amazing guest for our show today. We're an extremely important guest, uh, Dr. Louise Perkins-King, who's NMD and JD, assistant professor of OBGYN at Harvard Medical School, uh, works in the Division of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery, and is also the director of reproductive bioethics at Harvard Medical School's Center for Bioethics. Uh, so welcome, Dr. King. We're, we're really excited to have you, and, uh, and we're excited to really talk about this incredibly important issue that we're dealing with in the country right now. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm so happy to be here with you today, and please feel free to call me Louise. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You know, the reason, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, to start a show like this, and we're so grateful to be a part of the Backtable family of shows, but is to be able to have these conversations. And, and, and part of what this show is, is, is being able to meet somebody who has so much to contribute to all of our learning. But you know, that conversation you have at a, at, a, at a conference between the meetings, and you can really get into important topics and, 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 and ha- have these conversations. That's what this show is. And so there's not a more important conversation to me at this point than, than abortion access in light of the new, uh, not, as, not as recent, but more recent uh, rulings uh, regarding access care in the United States. And so we're very grateful to have you on. So, Louise, can you tell us a little bit about your, your role and in your current job, but also how did you how did you get there? MDJD it looks like a lot of letters after your name. Some people just joke that I love school. It's, that wasn't it. Um, my story is a bit long and windy, but my current role is I'm 80 20 80 percent clinical as a surgeon in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery at the Brigham, and a 20 percent protected time is the director of reproductive bioethics at the Harvard Medical School. Center for Bioethics, where I run a course on ethics and a a course on reproductive bioethics, and I get to do these types of talks and talk to students. But the journey to get here was a long and windy one. I was originally a lawyer who specialized in constitutional law with a focus on criminal law, and I worked um, for two state Supreme Courts, California and Louisiana, and I also ran a pro bono clinic. Um, in Dallas, Texas. So what I learned from all of those different experiences was that inequity is profound in this country and deeply affects women for the most part or or persons who could become pregnant for the most part. And I was just inspired by that experience to go into medical school to see if I could find a way to 
bring together my knowledge of con law, of civil rights, and my knowledge of medicine um, to try to make change in women's health. Uh, well, we're very grateful that you did. Um, I always like to understand how folks get to where they get, because I think a lot of us, especially when I was going through training, you see somebody who's up on one of these medical pedestals, and it just seems like they were plopped there. Um, and when you talk to people who are as accomplished as you, and, uh, and you know, I look up to you and a huge fan of yours, and to hear how you got there, I think, allows a lot of us to understand that all of our journeys are, are, are valuable, and we all have different ways of coming at coming at our jobs and how we got there. And so I always find it really interesting. Thank you. That's such a nice compliment. I'll share just because it might be helpful to people that I have terrible imposter syndrome. I stumbled my way through life to end up where I am now. And um, I would also love to share that I deeply admire both of you as well. We're very grateful to have you on. And uh, we wanted to go ahead and just start talking about the ruling. Uh, what happened? How did it happen? I know, you know when I asked you about it, you, you talked both importantly about politics and the legal side. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of explaining what happened. Sure. Um, it's complicated, and I'm certainly not the best expert. There are amazing, smart lawyers and law professors out there, but I've learned from them as well. Our, the decision that we had previously and our constitutional right to abortion existed under the decision of Roe v. Wade, which was subsequently undermined slowly by various decisions that came after it, including Casey and others. It was based on a compromise around privacy rights. And so this concept that as people, and specifically as people who could become pregnant, we had a right to make decisions about our bodies and decisions about whether we wish to carry pregnancies to term. And that that right was balanced against a right of the state to protect fetus as it develops later in a pregnancy. And by compromise, I mean that was a compromise between conservative thinkers within the court at the time, and specifically a compromise Justice Blackman was willing to undertake, who wrote the majority opinion along with others. The history of that is fascinating. It represented at the time uh, a consensus opinion of many you know, all of our citizens and the American Medical Association pushing very, very hard for an abortion right to exist nationally. It's been overturned after a significant amount of effort and decades and decades of work by conservatives to change the composition of the court so as to allow it to be overturned in the judiciary. The opinion in Dobbs, which overturns Roe, is frankly a bizarre opinion. It says essentially that because at the time of the framing of our country and the establishment of various constitutional amendments, there was no specifically enumerated right to abortion, um, that that right doesn't exist. But of course, the Ninth Amendment provides that protections in this country, constitutional protections, need not be enumerated in the Constitution. So it, in my opinion, as, as a lawyer, it makes absolutely no sense. So but just as much as the Dobbs opinion was a political opinion, the Roe opinion was also a political opinion. And our court is politicized. I think there's no way to avoid that. The fact that as a populace, we have not defended that right as aggressively as the minority of our population who have come after it is something that we need to own. And we can't turn to the courts to be the only protectors of these fundamental rights that we know exist. We need to vote. We need to fight against gerrymandering and all of the like that makes it more difficult for our votes to count. That's how we'll create change, honestly. 
And so relying on the Supreme Court to be some sort of defender of fundamental rights, I think, is probably not in our best interest. Thank you for that. And, and certainly in hindsight, it sounds like you know, the decision that allowed women to have access or people who can have pregnancies access to abortion, I wouldn't say that it was taken for granted, but I think the fact that it was recognized as law in this country allowed those who supported abortion rights not to have to do any additional work in that sense or as much work as those who opposed it because they, like you said, been working on it for decades. Now the work has to be stepped up on the other side if there's going to be something to be done about it. We've seen that in Kansas now as people have voted uh, and and said without, uh, stated very clearly what they wanted as a, as a state, as they, what, what, you know, allowing access to abortion to be part of state law there. And so, and we're dealing with that uh, in November here in Kentucky as well. Um, and that's something that um, we talk in a little bit about, you know, what we can do, we can explore those things as well. But, you know, this precedent was tied to other laws as well, right? So there's things that, that were in, in, the, uh, in the recent ruling that discussed things besides abortion, right? So can you talk a little bit about both what was specifically mentioned in the ruling and also things as a obstetrician gynecologist and a, and a care provider of, of, of patients who need abortions, but also contraception and other, other things. What are other things that we as OBGYNs should be, should be aware of in, in, in talking to and counseling our patients? Great question. The conservative justices that are currently sitting on the Supreme Court, at least two of them have signaled that they would also see a rule for overturning Griswold versus Connecticut and other privacy rulings related to reproduction and sexuality and marriage. And the Griswold ruling is? The Griswold ruling protects our right as married persons to access contraception. And there's a parallel case that also protects anybody's right to access contraception. So they're signaling that there might be no constitutional right to make that decision in a privacy, in a private way. Similarly, same-sex marriage would come under scrutiny as well, uh, something that is not constitutionally protected. And the Obergefell ruling was specifically cited in the opinion, if, I, if, I, if I'm correct. Is that right? You're correct, yeah. yeah. And I think one thing that we can take away from this is as healthcare professionals specifically charged with um, the health of persons who can become pregnant, uh, specifically charged with topics around um, sexuality and contraception, that we've done, frankly, a poor job of ensuring that we are out there educating the public and educating legislators and people who might sit on courts to understand what the public health ramifications are underlying some of the decisions that they're making. We, we try, but we are still not hitting the mark. So it's not for lack of trying, but we haven't helped our citizenry and our legislators understand the true nature of the decisions that they're making. Why do, why do you think that is? I mean, I have, I have opinions, but I mean, I think, and you said it, it's complex, clearly. But why, why do you think it is that we as OBGYNs have not necessarily done as good a job educating those who need to be educated about this, about this topic? I think perhaps we've not been bold enough, and there are political reasons for us not being bold enough in our discussions of these topics. So we still focus, for example, on a national level on the fact that we hope that decisions between persons and their physicians remain private. And, and that's our sort of that's about the extent to which we go when we lobby or when we go to the Hill or, or put out 
formal statements. And there are reasons for that because um, this is a touchy subject for a lot of people. So I understand the political decision making around that. But at the end of the day, if we just keep saying, just trust us, just let us do what we want to do behind closed doors, we're going to get nowhere. We need people to understand what the, this type of healthcare is, why it's essential healthcare, why it's complex, why it needs to be a decision that is made between an individual human being who has a right to bodily autonomy and the physician who's going to be caring for them, and why each person should want to defend that right for themselves and for others. To, if we don't get into the weeds and really explain why this is important, then just saying, oh, just trust us uh, probably won't, well, certainly hasn't gotten us as far as we need to go. Uh, that's powerful. I mean, I can speak to my own personal experience being a white male in Kentucky at University of Kentucky Medical School, where there was, certainly can't think of any time we talked about abortion, to going to a residency program with the Ryan program, right? So being directly involved in providing abortion care, which is something I had never been a part of and exposed to, politically always supportive of it. But that's different than understanding what abortion is, that abortion is healthcare and seeing it and seeing why it is, not qualifying why someone should or shouldn't get an abortion, right? It's There's no like, well, because of this reason. You hear a lot of people talking about reasons why this particular episode or this particular interaction is justified in a sense as opposed to just, this is healthcare. And I think that's something that is a conversation, and, I, and I'm not going to exclude myself from this either, right? That, that we've maybe been in a, a position of uh, privilege to not have to have that conversation. And as I sit here today, one of the first people I thought of when, I, when, when doing this show and talking about putting this show together was, okay, as a person who sits in a position of privilege in basically every seat that I sit in, like, what, what can I do? What is my, you know, as a healthcare provider, as I've had the privilege of having the opportunity to tell patients, oh, it's legal and you can take care of these things. But this is clearly not a role that we should be, that we can take anymore and expect to have our patients get the same level of healthcare. So that's why, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to have you on is because I, I it is hard, right? I think we talk about why people don't want to or don't feel as comfortable um, working or fighting for abortion access. I think part of it is fear. I mean, I know abortion providers who've said, oh, yeah, I understand that my life could be at risk and it's important enough to me. And like that, I mean, that is something most doctors don't have to talk about. Uh, yeah, I want to take out this kidney stone, but, you know, I don't want to talk about it because I might get, you know, somebody throwing a brick through my front window. Like, that's not something that most other specialties have to consider talking about. And as OBGYNs, this is absolutely part of what we do. And so, Talking about it, talking about it uh, frequently, and not sort of hiding behind that that ruling back in the day. We don't have that luxury anymore. So, you know, what do you say to docs who are afraid? You know, who are nervous about whether it's personal safety, whether it's professional safety. People who work and practice in hospitals with their religious affiliations or state affiliations or federal affili affiliations that have rules about what we can say. This idea of healthcare versus politics, and you and I probably agree that there's not a distinction in a lot of these things? Well, I think the first thing I would say is there's power in numbers, sort of that classic I am Spartacus kind of example. The more of us who stand up and speak and say this is healthcare, this is something that I believe is a fundamental right, the easier it will be for those who are providing the care and the more protections we will be able to achieve for them. 
you're absolutely right. There shouldn't be any person who, because they're providing an essential healthcare service, has to fear for their lives or the lives of their children. It's absurd. But to achieve that level of protection for them and to destigmatize provision of this healthcare, we need to all come forward very vocally ourselves and encourage our own institutions to be incredibly vocal about their support for providing this type of healthcare. And if we all stand firm in that regard, it's much more difficult to single certain people out. Uh, the same goes for our citizens. We know that at least 80% of Americans believe that abortion is healthcare at some stage or another. And we can quibble about later in pregnancy, but early in pregnancy, it's considered essential healthcare by the vast majority of the people of this country. So if you believe that, you need to be having these conversations with people in your community and everybody coming together and understanding how they feel about this fundamental right and what they're willing to do at the very least to speak openly and in support of it, I think would make an enormous difference, especially in parts of the country where it is so heavily stigmatized. Right. I think our communities are a little bit different. I wanted to just ask Louise, um, you know, just as a reminder for us who aren't dealing with the law all the time, you know, there's the executive branch, there's a the legislative branch, there's a, you know, the judicial branch. Obviously, Roe and Dobbs have to do with judicial rulings. Can you just explain why or how the strategy has come where we have these judicial rulings and now regulation of abortion has devolved to the states? And it's essentially a states' rights issue. I'm I'm just trying to understand the history behind that and what how that's going to play out. Sure. Anything that's not legislated federally under a, a variety of possibilities, in this case the Constitution, devolves to the states as an issue to be adjudicated. And of course, states' rights in our country and the tension between state and federal has a a difficult history and slavery, frankly. So it's a very loaded topic. But if something is not federally mandated, the states then can make decisions about it. Um, so for example, there are federal laws that prohibit certain types of murder, but if a murder is committed within a state, it's the state's right to adjudicate that murder under their own concept of what constitutes murder. And each state has very, very similar but slightly different concepts of what murder might be, just as a, an example. In terms of why Roe was decided, originally at the founding of this country, abortion was legal because it wasn't mentioned. So under English common law, which forms the basis of our law, any kind of action taken by a person who was pregnant ahead of quickening, which is when you could feel the fetus moving, which was defined by the individual themselves, of course, so it was fairly subjective, was not considered to be under the law at all. In other words, it wasn't illegal, it just wasn't mentioned. That changed with the Comstock laws, which were the subject of the Griswold versus Connecticut decision. Anthony Comstock was the commissioner of the Postal Service and was really intense about trying to stop pornography and he thought that contraception and abortifacients were related to promulgation of pornography. So he passed federal laws that made it illegal to use abortifacients 
um, which at the time were not particularly successful. They were just very toxic. And contraceptives, which some of which were somewhat effective. Those laws remained on the books for a really, really long time and were eventually overturned in Griswold versus Connecticut, mainly related to married couples and mainly pushed forward by affluent married persons who wished to start to uh, control their contraception, control their reproduction. And so it was a social change within the country to be more mindful of how many children any, pers- any particular family would want to have. Later, it was expanded um, with perhaps uh, one way of explaining this would be with sexual changes or changing uh, nature of our understanding of sexuality in the 60s and the 70s to afford all persons the right under privacy concept to make decisions about their reproduction. And then that privacy concept was expanded in Roe under uh, the Supreme Court ruling in Roe to include abortion. And that was pushed forward because of very public instances of women dying because of abortions that they had sought outside of medical care that, and with septic abortions and the like. An incredibly high maternal mortality rate related to poorly performed abortions. And so the American Medical Association, which originally had backed all the Comstock laws and originally backed um, making abortion illegal many years prior, now had turned around and said, we see women dying. We don't want to see that anymore. So we're going to back this change and file amici briefs at the Supreme Court. It went down that path because we've never had a very easy time of creating um, a legislative body that truly reflects the American populace. Our legislative body is exceptionally conservative in part because it's based on a compromise that was made related to slavery to ensure that states that had, that certain states that were heavily rural would have more representation essentially than very urban states. So if you look at the population of our country, and what I'm referring to right now is the Electoral College, of course, and then the way that senators are assigned and the way that representatives are assigned to, to Congress and to the Senate. If you look at the population of our country, we are a very liberal country. But if you look at the composition of our legislative, federal legislative body, we are not. And similarly, gerrymandering within every state both for federal elections and for state elections, results in a heavily conservative point of view being reflected in who will pass laws, whereas the population as a whole is fairly liberal. Right. And so you'll have cases that are, you know, written, uh, or rather that are, you know, that are pushed through, that are tried at local levels that are then with the, with the intention of them going up the court system to get to the Supreme Court. And when you have conservative communities, smaller state legislatures that are more conservative, they're more likely to pass laws that are more conservative that get, that then get challenged. And my understanding is they get written to be challenged. So they'll go up knowing that there are uh, more conservative members of the Supreme Court, but also something that I don't hear a lot about except from my law school professor friends are that the federal judiciary at the at the lower levels has been filled with much more conservative judges uh, that is a much harder problem to solve maybe even than than changing the the makeup of the Supreme Court. I mean, so you have very conservative 
judges that may rule and it may not, you know, may not get to the Supreme Court if they rule in a certain way and things like that. So it is, it sounds like a problem that when you really start to understand the methodology, the, how the country works, right? To Amy's point, like this is stuff that we've all had to learn. Maybe I should have paid closer attention in middle school, but how the, how laws are made and how the Supreme Court works and all those things. Um, there's a lot of things that are making this more difficult than just passing laws and things like that too, both at the state and federal level. So, Yeah, I agree. I was just going to say that, you know, my friend, I lived in DC for a while and a lot of the law school, the law firm partners tell me that they spend hours and hours and hours preparing for a case just for 15 minutes in front of a judge. Truly, I can't believe these decisions are being made very, you know, just in parsing out and researching how the history of these judicial decisions on the judge you happen to be assigned to it's it's uh, and they may decide not to hear it at all yes they can just say we're not going to listen to this and send it back down to the lower courts right and so true although the oral arguments are not really what i mean having worked uh, as a briefing attorney for two state supreme courts oral arguments mean very little a little it's bit it's not what they tell us on television I, they're not <laughs> because we spend when I worked in that capacity, you would spend weeks and weeks and months reading through, there's a lot of deliberation, reading through all the Amakai briefs, creating drafts. And um, there's some wonderful reporting being done about how the Roe decision uh, came down from the Washington Post, for example, all the different briefs that went around because that material is now released. So there's a lot of debate. It just doesn't, it doesn't, solely come down to the short time in front of a, a judge. That said, what you said about the federal judiciary being packed is absolutely true. So we're certainly dug into a hole um, in terms of the reliability of our current judiciary, and we're dug into a hole in terms of being truly represented in our national and even state governments. That doesn't mean that we can't make change. And I think that the biggest first step to change is to truly educate our population about reproduction, about sexuality, about what abortion as health care is, how it's a, comp- a compassionate delivery of care to a human being, um, and really emphasizing that to people so they can understand it. Practically speaking, how do you do that, though? Yeah. One of the wonderful parts of my job is to be the person who delivers a lot of that information to the students at our medical school. And then I end up getting to talk to students from all around the country because they'll reach out to me. I found that just having very open conversations and asking people, what gives you pause? What are you worried about when we talk about this topic? What do you think it is at the outset? How can I correct your misconceptions about it? But how can I also validate your discomfort with it? You know, it's, it's okay to feel uncomfortable with the idea of pregnancy that we we all tend to celebrate ending, you know, and it's okay to think, well, maybe there was something, some promise or even life, if you prefer that terminology, lost there. That's still compatible with an understanding of a human being being in front of you and that human being have the, having the right to make a decision about their body, having the right to decide that they don't want to take on the risk of going forward with a pregnancy, which can be very dangerous. And that's an amazing way to to think about it. And I and I feel the same way. When you have a when you have the ability to have an in depth conversation with somebody about abortion, we can have different opinions on things in politics. But though 
I believe abortion is healthcare. I also understand why somebody, their religious beliefs or otherwise, their personal beliefs, believe that life starts at conception. You're allowed to believe that. You can believe whatever you want. I understand that, that, that people feel differently than me about this, you know, and being able to have a conversation with someone who feels that way can oftentimes be challenging though, right? Because to them, they, you know, to someone who feels that what you're doing is ending a life or, you know, and in, in, in words of others, murder, right? I mean, I think that's, it can be challenging to have a nuanced conversation. It can be challenging to have someone who's willing to sit down with you and have that conversation. And I think that's where it's become so polarizing because I don't know that I need to change someone's mind about what they feel. And I don't want to, that's not my desire. Like you said, to educate people, to be able to sit down and have that conversation seems to be one of the harder things, certainly in more conservative areas, to actually get people to engage with you and say, let's talk about it. Man, that's tough. That's really tough to do. It's very hard. And the first thing to do is obviously this perhaps seems too simplistic, but it's so true. Just listen. I I spend a lot of time just hearing what students are telling me about how uncomfortable they are with all of this and how they don't know what they think or they were raised to think a certain way and they're not sure if they still think that, but it would be difficult for them with their family, you know, whatever it might be, and to validate their discomfort. And sometimes my conversations with students or others is mostly me just listening, you know, and and really not even trying to change minds, but just listening and and occasionally jumping in and saying, that's not completely accurate. And I'm happy to help you to understand the accurate physiology of this or whatever it might be, if you want, or I'll just listen. And then really leaving the door open for a possible later return to the conversation if uh, the student is interested, which they usually are. It takes a lot of time, which frankly is limited for all of us. But that listening and validation is key. Is most of the work you're doing in educating people about abortion? No, this is this is sort of a side gig. <laughs> um, we have a lot of just, side, side gigs, don't we? <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> no, but I mean, is most of your role in doing that education? Is that in the medical school with the medical students? Are you doing a lot of that outside of your beyond the many hats you wear within the College of Medicine as well? Yeah, this is on the side over coffee. So with my role as the I. I'm the director of reproductive bioethics, so that is a fairly public title, so people seek me out. And then I direct, or co-direct, I should say, the first-year course in ethics. I run it, I I write it, I run it, and we talk about abortion in that course. We actually specifically talk about abortion in that course from the perspective of desired pregnancies to make it easier for people to approach the topic. So even for those students in our, our course who feel that um, abortion is murder, using the most aggressive terminology possible. We give them cases to consider of persons who are pregnant but desire the pregnancy, yet their lives will end if they continue the pregnancy. What are you going to do? Right. So ask them to consider that question and then expand from that question to if you say that they have to keep going forward and perhaps compromise their own health or life, what would you say to a parent whose child is going to die because they need a kidney transplant, would you force someone to donate their kidney? Typically, the answer is no, although a surgery to have a kidney removed is safer than going to term with a pregnancy. So then we start going over those statistics. And, and that's how we start talking about this topic without saying that there's necessarily a right answer. 
but helping them to think through the various principles of ethics applied to these scenarios and what would they do. And a lot of times the students who are very adamantly opposed to abortion in almost all circumstances will simply conclude, I want this patient to have care. I don't know that I can provide it, so I'll refer. And I think that's an appropriate answer if that's where you're at. And so that I find to be to be useful. But a lot of those students as well say, I'd like to talk about this more. And that's how I end up in coffee conversations, you know, sitting in the atrium at the medical school, chatting with people. Anytime anybody wants to talk, I'm very, very willing to do so. I wanted to just jump and ask, jump in and ask you about the desired pregnancy um, aspect and the how IVF and that plays into it. I know here in Ohio, Dave Hackney, who's our district, ACOG district chair, has been super active in lobbying the Ohio legislature. We had a lobbyist. We had, he's maternal fetal medicine. And we also had an REI testify in front of the legislature. And I think REIs have a very particular slant on this that I'd love to hear your perspective on. I know you're not on REI, but just... I know you're married. I'm not. <laughs> I'm married to an REI. But you know one very well. Perspective yeah. frequently. So if you are of the opinion that life begins at conception, then IVF obviously doesn't work, right? Because at least if you're planning on uh, you, you know, freezing embryos or discarding embryos at any time, you couldn't proceed forward with IVF in that way. You could proceed forward by only creating one embryo that you would transfer. Your success rates would be much lower. Most REIs, though, also recognize that abortion is the provision of frequently surgical care in the context of miscarriage, which is very frequent, or in the context of ectopic pregnancy, which is more frequent with IVF. And so without having access to those services, IVF becomes unsafe, right? Um, You can't go forward with an IVF cycle knowing that if somebody is miscarrying and bleeding out, but they're still electrical activity from the developing embryo that you can't help them, right? That would be not okay. So so there are a number of ways that IVF and essential abortion care are deeply linked and tied together. So I think that's what they're coming from, uh, the perspective that they're coming from when they, when IVF providers, REIs testify um, in support of comprehensive access to abortion care. On a more fundamental level, Reproductive justice demands that we look at all reproductive services as being fair and equitable. And so we need to ensure, we can't ensure that we have IVF access for, frankly, in the United States, only those who can afford it, yet we're not going to afford abortion care to other persons. I mean, all of reproductive care is intimately tied together. And to achieve reproductive justice, which is defined as persons being able to make decisions about when and if they'd like to have children and how they would like to do so and being able to raise those children in a safe and equitable environment. That's the essential definition of reproductive justice. That implies that all of it has to come as one big piece. You can't ensure that IVF continues while dampening down access to abortion rights. It's all of one packet. I agree with that. Everything you just said about reproductive justice, um, you know, hearing the stories in the 70s, just the differential access to abortion resulted in very a lot of disparities in care, quite frankly. 
And then the patients who could afford it would use essentially brokers who would take them to New York. I mean, my parents trained in New York in the 70s, pre-Row, and and they were able to access safe healthcare in this realm. And then everywhere in the country that were, it wasn't legal, they had these septic abortion wards, which you alluded to earlier, and it resulted in incredible maternal m- mortality and, and deaths of, of women that could have been prevented. So I just worry that uh, lack of access is going to cause these problems again. And we're already seeing that uh, in many ways. Yeah, some people would debate the statistics, but when abortion access became much more limited in Texas over the past, I think, five years, they've seen an increase in maternal mortality. And as I mentioned, people debate those statistics, but I think they're pretty solid. We know that maternal mortality will increase with less access to abortion care. It's just a given. It's related not just to septic abortions, though. It's related to our lack of preventative health care in this country, the fact that many persons come to pregnancy without good control of hypertension and diabetes, and then pregnancy itself exacerbates those conditions, leading to risk of stroke, um, risk of, as you both well know, as trained ob So, And that mortality risk is felt to a much greater degree, not just a little bit more, but to a much greater degree by Black women, Black person. So the disparities that were seen in the 70s have not dissipated by any great margin, um, especially in certain parts of this country. And and we will absolutely see that increase. Like most things, right? When, when, these, when things like this happen, the people of color are affected much more significantly. Um, there are abortion providers I know that talk about providing abortions for politicians' families or seeing a, a person who for whom they performed an abortion out in front the next day picketing. And with HIPAA laws, you can't say, hey, you know, good to see you again. You know, there are people who are for abortion for themselves um, because they can. And so that's where it becomes a, an issue of equity and justice. I mean, more than anything else that we are creating barriers. We're not saying illegal, right? We're just, we're, we're creating more barriers for those who have the least access, who have the least support. We don't have a national healthcare system in this country, obviously. We don't have equitable health care even within those systems that currently exist. And we have hospitals and companies that uh, limit the specific health care, whether it's a religiously affiliated hospital or a company now with a religious affiliation that has uh, successfully lobbied, I believe, to allow them to have an impact on what type of health care their employees can get. Is that is that that's something that's happened? Is that right? You're correct. Yes. Yeah. So you know we have, we we're all about not we, but as a country, it seems like we're trying to you know limit access to health services in general, but specifically abortion more so than others right now. But it obviously and specifically impacts communities that can stand to benefit the least. And my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is like you know the the Affordable Care Act. The biggest impact that I found was that in the first seven years of the ACA being here was filing a personal bankruptcy went down by 50% because personal bankruptcy is almost overwhelmingly because of an accident, illness, or injury, right? That's not something that it's, you have to, you have to mortgage the house, then you can go get, you know, federal health care and things and support and things like that. So, um, you know, we have all of these trap doors, um, those who have the privilege to avoid them or fall through them and get picked back up is it's important for all of us, like, like me who have privilege to be aware that I'm where I am in no small part because of my privilege. And yes, we all worked hard. We all went to med school. Fine. Whatever I had to go through was likely harder for someone else than everybody else. And so 
being able to take a step back and communicate with folks who are different, who have different experiences, but talking to um, the experts and you know, hopefully what we get to do with the show is bring other, other, uh, other stories to be shared. So those of us who don't, whether it's experience or see or even have access to other patients and other experiences so we can all learn from it because we just, we have to try and learn so we can make these changes. But, you know, I think the biggest question I have sort of as we wind down here is like the very actionable steps to take next. Um, You know, we talked about education. You have a a medical school that sounds very supportive. Not everyone has that uh, opportunity to educate their students in this way or talk about abortion uh, in this way, but obviously educating students. But if what if you're you know if you, you may have limitations with your institution whether you can speak out at a at a pro-abortion event and those things and so wh- what what are the things that are going to allow us to improve access to abortion for people in this country what are the things that we as ones can do besides just voting what are the most important things we can do well I'd love to push back a little bit about if you're at an institution that doesn't support you having these conversations you do have a First Amendment right to do so I wouldn't ever demand that anybody put their job on the line. I understand that people have to support their own families and and that you do a lot of good in your job aside from this issue too. So, But if you chose to speak with a student about abortion, even have an event that you held, even if it wasn't sanctioned by your institution, you do have the right to do that, especially off campus, right? So you have a First Amendment right to speak about this topic. That's important. Thank you. The it's interesting, the two threads that you were just talking about um, were the fact that this country has done a very poor job, especially over the past four or five decades, of caring for its citizenry and of really being, you know, of providing preventative health care, providing supports for people um, so that they can work and be productive and all the types of things that are necessary for a functioning society. And at the another thread within what you were just speaking of was the fact that a lot of the drive behind the aggressive way in which uh, certain conservatives have gone after uh, Roe and gone out or going after some other fundamental rights that we have is supposedly driven by their desire for our nation to be more reflective of a Christian nation, right? And you know, there's a religious underpinning to this. But notably, the Christian religion is founded on helping your neighbor and helping each other. So that's always seemed very confusing to me. And so again, I do think the biggest thing we can do aside from voting, which all of the population needs to do, aside from perhaps even running for office wherever you live, small um, local office, um, aside from giving talks, is educating each other, educating all of the people around us, using our First Amendment rights, and talking to people on a level that is important to them. So when I speak to conservatives, about this topic, I frequently cite scripture. You know, I'll come back to aspects of scripture and why you need to care for each other. And I'll read the Bible with people. Whatever it is that is will resonate with the person, I want to meet them where they are. And I want to understand what their concerns are. And then I want to express my concerns about the topic in a way that is meaningful to them. So educating ourselves about why people are are so latched onto this topic in such a negative and uh, aggressive fashion, and then trying to see what we can use of the knowledge that we have as physicians, as scientists, but also just as people to try to connect and, and resonate, I think is where we can make the most difference. Thank you. And that's, well, two things. One is, I think, 
that's extremely practical and helpful for us and 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 doing nothing is no longer an option right we've got to do something and whatever little impact we can make like you said if we all do it together it becomes a big impact and then in terms of running for office if you ever do choose to run for office let me know you've got a supporter in me right here um so uh it, it's been fantastic amy any any other thoughts or i i wanted to just ask about uh you know talking about education and access um what are we going to do in terms of addressing the gaps in training since it's a requirement for ACGME? How do you see us navigating that as a specialty? Well, I think most special or most right now, many OB-GYNs get abortion training, but the training that they get in some states is pretty limited. So for example, I trained in Texas and my training was exceptionally limited. I was only taught how to do management of miscarriage, not actual therapeutic abortion, no counseling around abortion. And granted, this was many years ago, but I don't think it's changed that much in some of uh, Southern states. So, And it's important to note that only 14% of OBGYNs provide abortion care. So we have a lot of work to do to ensure that we're all providing the care that is an essential part of our discipline. And a lot of work to do even outside of the Dobbs decision and the certain different le state legislative actions to ensure that every resident comes out well-trained. So there was already, we were already behind in that regard. I don't know what each institution is going to do to ensure that that care is part of fundamental training moving forward. I honestly am not sure. I think that's a really, really big problem. Probably deserves its own show. I think that's something we should we should definitely think about either having you back or if you have recommendations for folks, because yeah, it's it's extremely important to train our residents to be able to understand how to care for patients who no longer desire pregnancy. And that's something that, like you said, is highly variable before this. It was extreme, you know, like you said, the experience, those of us who went through residency is very different depending on where you went. If you were in a conservative place versus a place at the Ryan Center, the two experiences would not approximate each other very closely. And, or, or, and folks are allowed to opt out too, right? So there's highly variable. The other thing I wanted to just ask, and I don't know if there's an, an answer that you can give, but this ruling has contributed to a sense of moral injury among caregivers in terms of not being able to offer the full spectrum of care. How can we best support physicians who are in this position? Oh, that's a great question. I think I would come back to we all need to be very vocal in our support of our colleagues who provide this care regularly and that we believe it to be essential health care. And not only just essential health care, compassionate, conscientious delivery of care that we feel that strongly about it so that they know that we are very grateful for the work that they do and you know honored to call them our colleagues like really fight back hard against the stigma that's developed around provision of this care thank you wow uh, that was extremely helpful thank you so much again i feel like we could have you for hours and hours on on end but in light of you know in, of interest of your time i think we probably ought to wrap things up but Thank you again for your time, for your wisdom, for your experience and sharing that with us and our listeners. I think this is exactly why we're doing the show is so we can we can help those of us around the country who aren't lucky enough to get to you know meet you 
in this environment and share these conversations that are, to me, I think how all of us learn. Um, I think having these conversations in this forum is going to be fun. So thank you again and hope to have you back soon. Oh, I'd be honored to come back. It's a pleasure.